So anyway, we are continuing our study of the book of Exodus, and we're going to be in Exodus chapter 6 this morning. Exodus chapter 6. Have you ever had anything go wrong in your life? Have you ever had anything go wrong as a direct result of you doing good? That's the position Moses finds himself in this morning. Moses is a chosen man of God. He's not a person who doesn't believe in God, who utterly refuses to enter into a relationship with God. Moses is representative of a believer. He's an Old Testament believer. And though his circumstances in a number of ways are different, fundamentally he is like us. He is a follower of the Lord. And yet here's this genuine follower of the Lord with a great calling on his life, and yet nevertheless he is experiencing evil. He is experiencing trials. He is experiencing tribulation. And not just generally or in some sort of apparent, random, unconnected sense, He's actually experiencing evil in direct response to his decision to obey God. Now that doesn't make things easier for a follower of God. That makes it harder. It's kind of funny. I've I've heard some people say that the reason I don't believe in God, the reason I don't believe in the Lord, the reason I'm not a Christian, is I find it to be intellectually uninteresting. In other words, I think people that believe in God are people that don't like to think. They like to shut off their brain and God, and they pull out the God hypothesis. They press the button on the machine and God pops out and He answers all their questions. I find a relationship with God to be the opposite. The tension that is created by believing in God is actually one of the reasons many people don't want a relationship with Him. You see, if there is no God, that evil happens really is not a question at all. Why shouldn't evil happen? Where do you get this idea that it ought to be any different? What really defines good and evil anyway? Isn't it entirely arbitrary and subjective? Isn't evil really not some eternal moral wrong, but simply your opinion about a particular circumstance? I actually find that it's entering into a relationship with God that is a real challenge to the mind and to the heart. And this is no strange thing. This is the very meaning of the name God gave to Jacob. Yisrael. He who wrestles with God. A follower of Jesus is not somebody who enters into some mindless, effortless life, but rather they are somebody who against all odds, against the struggles of life, the trials, the tribulations, the tensions, the paradoxes of believing in a good, sovereign, almighty Creator God, and yet there is wrong and evil, injustice and calamity in the world. And we're going to actually look at this morning, Moses is struggling with these tensions. Some of us are struggling with these tensions this morning. God, if You're real, why did You let that happen? God, if You're good, how could You allow this to continue? God, if You're able to save, why are You not saving right now? Now's the time, Lord. Why are You not saving now? Moses is wrestling with these questions. And last week in chapter 5, we see that he's come to a human breaking point. He's not losing faith, but he's struggling. But he turns those struggles rightly to God. His struggles don't drive him from God. They drive him to God. And so he ends chapter 5 asking several questions, of which chapter 6 
is God's response. So let's look at God's response now to Moses' questions in 5.22-23. through 23. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will let them go, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Lord, I was not known to them. I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage in which they were strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people. And I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. So Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel, but they did not heed Moses because of anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Go in, tell Pharaoh king of Egypt to let the children of Israel go out of his land. And Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, The children of Israel have not heeded me. How then shall Pharaoh heed me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a command for the children of Israel and for Pharaoh king of Egypt to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. These are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben. The firstborn of Israel were Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the families of Reuben. And the sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Yaquin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the families of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And the years of the life of Levi were 137. The sons of Gershon were Libni and Shimi according to their families. And the sons of Kohath were Amram, Izar, Hebron, Uziel, and the years of the life of Kohath were 133. The sons of Merari were Mali and Mushi, and these are the families of Levi, according to their generations. Now Amram took for himself Yachaved, his father's sister, as Mos- and Moses. And the years of the life of Amram were 137. The sons of Izar were Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. And the sons of Uziel were Mashel, Elzaphon, and Zithri. Aaron took himself Elisheva, daughter of Aminadab, sister of Nashon, his wife, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. And the sons of Korah were Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These are the families of the Korites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took for himself one of the daughters of Putiel as wife, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites according to their families. These are the same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the children of Israel from the land of Egypt according to their armies. These are the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring out the children of Israel from Egypt. These are the same Moses and Aaron. And it came to pass on the day the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt that the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I am the Lord. Speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you, But Moses said before the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips, and how shall Pharaoh heed me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just pray for Your blessing over this time of teaching. Lord, we believe that Your Word is living and active and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce between bone and marrow, soul and spirit, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our hearts this morning. You want to show us where we are. And you want to show us who you are and where you want to take us. And so, Lord, I just pray that we would be open not only in mind, but in heart 
to what you would want to say to us. Lord, create in us the conditions needed for greater faith than we came with this morning. Move upon us, Lord, and cause us to be men and women who love you and do your will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm calling this morning's message, The Lord Alone is Our Redeemer. The Lord Alone is Our Redeemer. So if you'll notice chapter 6, aside from the genealogy in verses 14 through 23, it's almost entirely the Lord speaking. So this is the Lord's speech. We only have a few intermittent comments from Moses. So Moses asked a couple of questions and made an assertion, which is it's kind of like an accusation or a complaint. But at the end of chapter 5, verses 22 through 23, this is basically what Moses said. Number one, why have you done evil to this people? It's what Moses asked God. Why have you done evil to this people? That's a personalized version of the age-old question, if God, why evil? Now you can ask that in a philosophy classroom and certain answers will fly and certain ones won't. But the ones that are most meaningful are not the philosophy class answers. They're the ones that are personal. Lord, if you're real, if you're a believer, it's not a question of God's existence. It's His goodness. Lord, if you're real and you're good, then why this circumstance? Moses is asking that question. The second thing is Moses says, why did you ever send me? So he's questioning his call. It's very common for God's people to question their call. Lord, why did you send me to do this? Why am I doing this missions work? Why am I doing this ministry in the local church? Why did you give me this job? What, what, what's going on with the family? Why did you send me to do this? Moses is questioning his call. And lastly, and again, it's not a question, but I think if we read it carefully, we can discern and detect an implicit question. So Moses simply asserts, Lord, you have not delivered your people at all. He just asserts that of God. And is he wrong? The funny thing is at that moment when Moses says, Lord, you haven't delivered your people at all. That's a true statement. But implicit is, Lord, why have you not delivered on your promise? You promised something and you haven't delivered. So why have you not done that? And of course, Moses is concerned about God's promise because of his understanding of God's timing. God's timing and our timing, as I shared last week, very rarely coincide. For many people, they, they begin with the assumption, God and I if, I, if I just do the right things, read the Bible, go to church, have good theology, then I'll just, my timing and God's timing will be, it'll be pretty good. You know, we'll be, be like two partners who've been dancing for a long time. We've took lessons and we never step on each other's feet. We're just, we're just perfect. But I find when we're trying to dance with God through the rhythms of life, we're often stepping all over the place. Our, our footwork is terrible. We're not keeping in rhythm with God. Most of the time, I would say in life, our sense of God's timing is wrong. So many times when we feel that God is not keeping His promises or that He's not good or that our calling is in jeopardy, it often has to do with the issue of timing. But the Lord responds to these questions not necessarily point by point, but it is the Lord's response. And so I want to unpack what the Lord says to Moses when he's experiencing these questions. Number one. The Lord is able to exceed our highest expectations. Look at verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. Moses is not wrong because his expectations are too high. Moses is wrong because his expectations are too low. So Moses' complaint is, Lord, I, I was hoping Pharaoh would come to the place where he was willing to reluctantly open up his hands and let it go. 
And God's answer is, Moses, you're going to see what I can do. And when you see what I can do, not only is He going to let you go, He's going to send you out. He's going to drive you out. You're not even going to have a choice of whether you want to stay in the land. He's going to send you and drive you out of the land. God is going to do more than what Moses thinks, not less. So bear in mind that so often when we're wanting God to act in our lives, He's able to exceed our highest expectations. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, the Apostle Paul, writing to Christians, says this, Now to Him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever amen so when things aren't going our way and things are bad we tend to lower the bar and think that because things are getting bleak that that means there's less chance God's going to do something we see here the opposite is true. We see that when things are getting worse, it's simply God preparing conditions and hearts and situations so that He will be magnified and glorified in a way far beyond what we can ask or imagine. My word to you is, do not let the darkness of the night cause you to doubt the brightness of the coming morning. Point number two. The Lord's past faithfulness warrants our present trust. Look at verses 2-5. through five. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Lord, I was not known to them. I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage in which they were strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. So the first thing to do when we're asking these questions, Lord, why are you allowing this bad thing to happen? Lord, why did you call me to do this in the first place? Lord, why aren't you delivering on your promises? One of the first things we need to do is call to mind, and with the psalmist, as in Psalm 77 we read this morning, we are invited to rehearse, recite audibly, out loud, in the assembly, with worshipful voice and praise, recite the wonderful saving acts of God. You see, we're going to need greater faith for the trials that are to come our way. We're going to need greater faith. Well, how do we summon such faith? If we're in the darkness and we see no light, where in the world am I going to muster this faith? And the answer here and throughout the Bible is Zachar. Remember. Remember how I brought you out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Remember I'm the one who spoke the world into existence out of nothing. Remember I'm the one that separates the day and the night. Remember I'm the one that separates the land from the sea and the mountains and the valleys. I am the Lord. Remember who God is. And we should be singing new songs. Not only do we rehearse the mighty acts of God in Scripture, but you are invited to rehearse and recite God's mighty acts in your life. For some of us, this can be a family history. Some of us have, by God's grace, a legacy of faith that goes back generations. Who among you here believes, at least in part, humanly speaking, because a father or a mother or a grandmother or a grandfather passed down the faith to you? I know that's true for me. I was given a legacy of faith. And that though my earthly father is now gone, that legacy of faith of my heavenly father is more present with me than ever before in my life. 
Many of us are here for that. Others of you, there was no legacy of faith in your family whatsoever. If you did a genogram or genogram, if you looked into your family history and you were to do research and go back and spiritually speaking, be like, were there any of faith in my family? And you go back and you go back generation and generation. It's like nobody believes. And yet here you are this morning. Evidence of the grace of God. That God at some point in time, at some point in your life, against the odds, against the research that says, well, you're more likely to believe if you grow up in a house of faith and you're less likely to believe if you don't. Against these human odds and statistics, God has brought you here this morning. How did that happen? Who spoke the word of truth to you? When did God reveal Himself to you? Was it in a spectacular moment of time that you remember like it was yesterday? Was it a long, slow, subtle, gradually pulling you out of darkness and into light that took years if not decades? Whatever that is, rehearse those things. Were there prayers that you prayed that God ever answered? What are those? Have you forgotten them? Have you forgotten that this is not the first time in your life you lost sleep over some impending trial? Do you remember when you said to yourself repeatedly, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this. And yet here you are. God has been faithful to you. The Lord here tells Moses, Moses, let me remind you of my past faithfulness. I was faithful to your ancestors, the Lord says. I was faithful to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. Moses, in this moment when you're wondering, is your faith, is your trust well placed in me? Remember this. I was the one who was with your ancestors. I'm the one that walked with them through life. Though they are no longer here, I who walked with them am now walking with you. Listen to the stories of faith in your family, in our church, and in the history of the Christian church. Read biographies of the great men and women of faith. These are food for our faith. They excite faith because in them we see God's faithfulness to men and women throughout history who lived through dire times. And we can be encouraged that God's past faithfulness warrants our present trust. The Lord says that not only did his ancestors know him, but that the Lord entered into a personal covenantal relationship with them. The Lord is saying, Moses, I wasn't just some distant God like the gods of the neighboring tribes who kind of come and go and they don't love you and they don't make treaties with you, they don't care about you. I entered into a personal covenantal relationship with them and I didn't have to. There was nothing that was forced upon God that said, I have to have a personal relationship with you. I desired to be intimate with you, to know you, and for you to know me. And that's the kind of relationship I had with your ancestors. Lastly, he says, and I have heard the cry of my people and I will act according to my promise. You can know that when others in your position Yes, as different as the details might be. You can say, well, there was no Michael Aaron Jaddick Sr. before me, and therefore nobody knows what I'm going through. I can say things like that. And I can certainly feel that way. And there's obviously some truth to that. But if we're willing to see it, there are temptations and tests and trials that are common to humanity, to humankind. And that we can look back as people in former times cried out. They cried out because they wrestled with infertility. They cried out because a father outlived his son and had to bury him in the ground. Those that cried out because they were inflicted with diseases and were in pain morning, noon, and night and cried out for relief. 
those that had people that hated them and were trying to ruin their lives and drag them through courts, that they cried out for help and God heard them. You can know that God too hears the cry of your heart and of your voice and He will act according to His promise. Number three, you can trust that your salvation is entirely the work of God. Look at verses 6-8. through Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am Yahweh. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as My people and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you as a heritage. I am Yahweh. So here in this section, after having rehearsed His past faithfulness that warrants our trust, we see that God is Savior and that He is entirely Savior. Moses has attempted to do his very best to free Israel. Not only was it not good enough, it backfired. Moses' effort to make Israel's deliverance possible only resulted in greater slavery. That's what happened with Moses attempting, desiring to save Israel. And in its place, we have seven I will statements. Seven I will statements. In Hebrew, numbers matter. They mean something. They establish patterns of thought. And the number seven represents perfection or completeness. Seven I will statements is not an accident. It's not a coincidence. It's a way of communicating to God's people that deliverance and salvation is wholly a work of God. It is what He does and it is who He is. Now some people point to that phrase in verse 3 and 4 where God says, by My name Yahweh I was not known. Well, there's questions about that. Is it true that they did not know Him. Genesis 4.26 makes it clear that at that time people began to call on the name of Yahweh. So scholars are wrestling, wait a minute, I thought it said they, they did know Him, but then here it says, by My name Yahweh, they didn't know Me. Probably what's going on here is the idea that these various names of God are associated with particular experiences of God. In other words, it's not that the patriarchs had not heard the name Yahweh before, but they knew Him primarily as El Shaddai, the mighty God. But this name Yahweh in the Bible comes to be primarily associated with redemption. Redemption from slavery. And so of course, even if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob heard the name Yahweh before, they did not know Him as the One who redeems from slavery. Moses and the people of Israel are knowing God in a new capacity. People can know God. Romans, Paul says in Romans 1, everyone knows God as Creator by virtue of creation. Without the Spirit of God, you don't welcome that information. You suppress the information and you change the information to serve your purposes. Well, I don't want to believe in a Creator at all. Even I know there has to be one. Or okay, there's a Creator, but maybe He's like this and maybe He's like that. Maybe there's ten Creators and they cooperated in different things. So everyone in one sense, Romans says, knows God as Creator. But they don't know Him as Yahweh. The God who saves His people from slavery. And so, Moses is being granted the opportunity to know God in a way the patriarchs themselves did not know God. And that is what you and I are being offered in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not good enough to just say, well, I believe in God. Do you know God 
as he who redeems his people from slavery. Do you know what it's like to experience God who forgives your sins? Who provides himself as the Passover lamb that enables death to pass over your house? Do you know him as the one who takes you out of the addictions and the things that ensnare you and he brings you out for a life full of meaning and purpose, obedience and worship? Do you know the Lord in that way? And God is saying, this is why you are in this place, Moses. I don't want you to any longer just know me as El Shaddai, God Almighty. I want you to know me as Yahweh, the one who delivers from slavery and fulfills his covenants. I will bring you out. I will rescue you. I will redeem you. I will take you as my people. I will be your God. I will bring you into the land. I will give it to you as a heritage. This act is all about God. It's the first time in the Hebrew Bible that we come across this important Christian word, redemption. Here God is presented as Gaal, the kinsman redeemer, the one in the family who saves the family members from their trials and tribulations and travesties. The kinsman-redeemer concept would operate in Israel in a number of respects. If a family member was unjustly killed, then the kinsman-redeemer's job would be to exact justice. If a family member went through difficult financial times and had to sell themselves into slavery to pay off their debt, the goel, the redeemer, would be the one charged with buying them back out of slavery. And so for the first time, though the patriarchs knew God, and it's the same God, El Shaddai is Yahweh, but they did not know Him in this capacity. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, affirming that salvation is a work of God, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. You ask, why did God allow things to be what they were? Why did God allow Israel to be slaves in the land of Egypt? Why did God allow Moses' first meeting with Pharaoh to backfire and to cause things to be worse? I think at least one of the reasons is that last line in Paul, so that no one can boast. You see, God wants to save, God wants to deliver, but if He doesn't do it at the right time in the right way, what happens? We attribute salvation, redemption, deliverance to something or someone else. We say to ourselves, wow, I was really smart. This financial crisis came up and wow, I used my my experience and my degree, my MBA and my background and this and this and look, oh my gosh. Oh, thanks Lord. I mean, I, I threw up a prayer too, but do you see what I did there? You see what I did, Lord? If God doesn't clear the deck, so to speak, we will give credit where credit is not due. We will say, well, this person saved me. Oh, this boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, father, mother, sister, brother, whatever. They saved me. They are my Goel, my Redeemer. Many times God has to bring us to a place in life where there is no other Goel but God. That only the Lord can redeem me from this situation. And from personal experience, I can say, I hate being in that place. I hate being so low that there is no other Redeemer. I prefer to be in a place where I can redeem myself with my gifts and talents. I prefer to be in a place when a family member, oh, I I already know, they've got the resources, they can help me with this, or I know what to do about this, or hey, these people over here, they're professional, they're good at what they do, they can just take care of it. I hate being in a place where the decks are completely clear and it's going to be God and God alone or no one at all that saves. It is not a pleasant place to be, but it is the most important place to be for creating greater faith in the life of a believer.
I know that God has brought us to these trials that we have in life, my own included, so that I will look up and I will place more of my hope, more of my trust, more of my expectation, and more of my treasure in heaven than I do on earth. And these trials are what drive me to that obedience. Number four, beware of the virus of unbelief. Look at verse 9. So Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel, but they did not heed Moses because of anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. Listen to that. So the Lord gives Moses a word. Moses was discouraged. Lord, why aren't you delivering? Evil is happening. You haven't fulfilled your promise. And God speaks to him. It's like he's having a bad week. He comes to church. You hear a word and you get all encouraged. Then you leave and you go to share that word with somebody and they just dump on it. And then it's contagious because it comes right back on you. That seed that was planted in you that brought you exhortation, edification, comfort, joy, spurned you to new obedience and ventures of faith. And then you share it and someone goes, oh, that's lame, that's dumb, I don't share that. And it comes right back on you and you now feel the same way as this person who just doubted. Unbelief is like a virus and it absolutely spreads. And it's spreading through Israel. And in the subsequent verse you'll actually see and it comes back on to Moses. Moses then, in his next audience with the Lord, he now is starting to go back into the same unbelief that the people of Israel are. When he goes back to them, he says, oh Lord, I'm not the one. Remember that speech thing I talked to you about where you know, either I've got a speech impediment or at least I perceive that I do and I get really nervous and I don't want to do it. Well, here it is again, and I think it's even worse than before. I think you should just disqualify me from ministry. We see that unbelief is like a virus. And disappointment in life can be so overwhelming that it becomes almost humanly impossible to believe. Have you ever been in a place like that? It's like life has been so disappointing. And in one moment, I think, you know, at least some of us, maybe most of us, we can handle that. I can handle a disappointment. I can even handle a big disappointment. The, thing, the disappointment that gets me is the long, slow, consistent disappointment of life of a season, of a decade, of this, you know, whatever it is, it's just that disappointment that continues day after day. And it creates conditions in our heart which makes faith, humanly speaking, next to impossible. And why is that? It's because I don't care what your personality type is, Though we're all intellectual in some sense, you have a brain, you think, you go through a cognitive process of some sort, yet we're all emotional creatures. And our emotions are a part of our process of thinking. I can know something to be true here and yet feel something entirely contrary. And what's normally going to win for most people? Their emotions. Emotions are powerful. Emotions are so powerful, our culture today has actually just said, obey your emotions. That's what the Disney phrase, follow your heart, means. It means when you feel that dissonance, that incongruity between what you believe intellectually and rationally and the emotions of your heart, when they're in conflict, which should you believe? Our culture says your feelings. And that just exacerbates it because you don't even need our culture to do that. Your own sin nature wants to do it anyway, regardless of what movies you watch or don't watch. You will want to obey. If you emotionally wake up in the morning feeling like God's not there, it's very tempting to live that day like God's not there. If in your heart you feel like God can't do anything or doesn't want to or He's not good or He's not... If you feel that way, even though you know He's been that in the past and you know Scripture says it today and He hasn't changed and I know the character and nature of God, same yesterday, today, and forever. He's immutable. I know that. But our emotions are caught up in it. And so this makes unbelief a virus. And it can actually spread from one person in a marriage to their spouse. The virus of unbelief. The one spouse wants to follow God, the other one doesn't. And it begins to spread to the one who believes. 
then it spreads to the family unit. They no longer want to believe. It can spread to groups, a community group in the church where people don't want to believe. And it can spread to a church. It can actually take over where people might still come. Maybe many people won't come anymore, but even the people that come, they come with unbelief. Not expecting to hear from God or experience God. It is a virus. The great Victorian preacher in London, C.H. Spurgeon, in his ministry at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, witnessed this happen in the life of his church. And in a sermon on this, he spoke these words. He said, some cannot receive Christ because they are so full of anguish. They are so crushed in spirit that they cannot find strength enough of mind to entertain a hope that by any possibility, salvation can come to them. The mere struggle to exist exhausted all their energy and destroyed all their hope. I do not wonder that a great many are unable to receive the Gospel in this city of ours because their struggle for mere existence is awful. I am afraid that it gets more and more intense, though even now it passes all bounds. If any of you can do anything to help the toil-worn workers, I pray you, do it. And yet, dear friend, if such a one has come in here tonight in this case, I pray you do not throw away the next world because you have so little of this one. This would be sheer folly, my friends. If I have little here, I would make all the more sure that I have in the hereafter. I think if we look at the New Testament, Christians have more reason for faith and optimism than the Israelites before the Exodus. Where's all the doctrine and Scripture about resurrection? To be sure, Jesus will cite the passage in Genesis that I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he uses the present tense of the verb, I am still the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, to say that the relationship has not been terminated, and therefore that's soil for the doctrine of the resurrection. And yet I'd say that was hardly explicit at the time. You, most of the blessings you'll notice as you read the Old Testament are about this life. The land is not a land after I die. It's a land here and now. Blessing, is not, blessing and peace are not so much a feeling that I have inside that God gives me, but simply peaceful relationships with my family members and with the neighboring tribes. It's outward, it's temporal, it's here. But for us Christians, we have been promised resurrection. We've been promised new heavens and new earth. We've been promised that no matter what happens here, whether God ends up saving me in the temporal way that I want Him to or not, I have all the reasons for faith because Jesus died and rose again to promise me that my place in the new heaven, in the new earth, in the kingdom of God is saved forever. And that no one can take that from me. So beware of the virus of unbelief. Your faith should not simply be in your circumstances or what you hope them to be, but in the living God who raises the dead and has made a covenant with you in Christ. Number five, nothing this world or the devil may throw at you can thwart God's call on your life. Look at verses 10-13. through 13. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Go in, tell Pharaoh king of Egypt to let the children of Israel go out of this land. And Moses spoke before the Lord saying, The children of Israel have not heeded me. How then shall Pharaoh heed me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a command for the children of Israel, for Pharaoh king of Egypt, to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Notice here that Moses' doubt and desire to be disqualified from ministry is met by the Lord's gracious reaffirmation of his call. When, when Moses says, Lord, I am of uncircumcised speech, so he's hearkening back to the earlier call narrative in Exodus 3-4 where the Lord appears in the burning bush. And you remember part of Moses pushing back against God's call on his life was he used 
language related to his ability to speak. Not this exact language, but language related to it. He said, I'm heavy-mouthed, I'm tongue-tied. And we talked about whether that was an actual speech impediment, it could be, or whether it was simply, it was a perceived impediment. Maybe he didn't have it, but that's how he felt about it. And if you feel that way, it's real for you, at least experientially. But what's interesting here is he uses a sort of peculiar phrase. I am of uncircumcised lips. Now that is a spiritual, moral, religious phrase. And there's this weird scene we talked about at the end of chapter 4 where Moses is on his way to do what God said to Egypt and all of a sudden, God shows up and wants to kill him. And you're like, what in the world is that about? Why does God want to kill him? And we find out it's because Moses, the great leader and exemplar of Israel, has failed in his most basic responsibility as a father. He has not circumcised his son. And so Moses knows that that was such a big issue as to be disqualifying for him. That if he did not circumcise his son, an act of obedience, symbolic of God's relationship with his people, then he was disqualified from ministry. And here he is using that phrase to talk about a particular weakness or inability. What I think he's saying essentially is, Lord, I want to be disqualified. I don't want to do it anymore. Please look at me and see that I am not the man for the job. I'm not good enough. I'm going to fail. I'm going to sin. And if I'm going to sin, don't you want a a perfect person who's not going to make mistakes? Isn't that who you want, Lord? Aren't those the kind of people you choose? You choose saints, don't you? You don't want sinners in the church. You, You want perfect saints who don't do anything wrong. But we see that God responds to him with grace. Moses, I'm not looking for perfect people. I'm looking for believing people. I'm looking for people who will trust in me because I don't call the qualified. I qualify the called. Lastly, number six. The Lord does not save us so we can live however we want but so that we will live lives of worship. I'm not going to rehearse the genealogies to you, but you might wonder why in the world it's placed there in the middle of a narrative. Let me sum it up for you, and it's actually quite practical. The goal of the genealogy, and it's highly selective, the goal of the genealogy is to establish the priestly line for future generations. That's the goal. Why does that matter? What's the big deal about establishing the Levitical priestly line, especially in this context? And the answer is that the purpose of the priestly line is to lead people into worship. This tied into the Exodus tells you what the point of salvation is. Why does God save anyone? Is it so you can live the kind of life you want to live? Is that why you're here? I have a life I want to live. It looks like this, a certain standard of living. I live in this place. I drive this car. I go on these vacations. Blah, 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 blah. Fill it all in. I got wonderful relations with my kids and grandkids and everybody likes me and all all this stuff. Is that why God saves you so you can get what you want? Or is the whole goal of God saving Israel so that they will worship Him? The answer is yes. That's the point of salvation. That you would become a worshiper. If God's going to save you from a trial, it's not just so you can be comfortable. It's so that you will be worshipful. God told this to Moses. He says, Moses, when I send you to Egypt and you save Israel, you're going to come back here at this mountain and you will worship the goal of salvation is worship it's the reason you were alive you were made to worship god it is the chief end of man to know god and to enjoy him forever that's the meaning and purpose of your life when we fail to worship we fail to fulfill the reason we exist And all these little cheap substitutes we try to find. 
As tempting as they are, just being comfortable, just avoiding pain and difficulty and suffering and getting into arguments with people or whatever it is, that is not the goal of your life. The goal is worship. If you're here this morning, you could be here for a hundred reasons. As simple as, well, somebody invited me and I've been promising for three years. It could be that simple. No big, grand, lofty reason. But let me tell you something. God has you here for another reason. And the reason is so that you might know Him and worship Him as the God who saves. I pray that that is what we would do and that is how we will live. Let's pray. Father, we just come before You this morning and we thank You so much that You are a God who saves You are a God who delivers. You are a God who keeps His promises, though in Your timing, not in ours. So Lord, this morning in this time of response, I do pray that You would increase our faith, our trust in You. I pray that to ourselves, Lord, we would rehearse the mighty acts that You have done in our own lives. Help us to remember You've been faithful all the way to this way. Help us to remember that when we wrestle with whether we can trust You with what we're presently looking at, that the answer is yes. That You said, I will never leave You and I will never forsake You. And that means through the highest mountains and the lowest valleys, You will be with us through the thick and thin of life. Lord, I just pray that we would worship You. We would glorify You as God. And I pray we would enjoy You. I pray that we would experience joy. I pray that even our emotions would be affected by the presence of Your Spirit. That we would experience a deep, deep abiding peace that surpasses any circumstances in the external world. Lord, help us to know You. Help us to worship You. We thank you, Jesus, for making this possible. We pray this in your name. Amen.